Are you telling me you don't miss Margaret Thatcher from the 80s? <laughs> And welcome to the Glasshouse Game Show, recorded not all in Brick Lane today, um, but still mostly in London. I'm Samantha, and today I'm joined by Matt and Astrid. And we have a very special guest today, our game developer extraordinaire, uh, Xavier Nelson Jr. Hey, everyone. Um, do you want to talk us through, Nelson, just a little bit about your background and the kind of stuff you do for those that are not familiar, which I find hard to believe at this point. You're a superstar at this point. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Zolver Nelson Jr. I'm a narrative director and studio head working in indie and beyond. Uh, you might know me from my work on Hypnospace Outlaw, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, Skatebird, uh, Reigns Beyond, or literally dozens of other titles. I'm BAFTA nominated. I, I'm putting out new stuff all the time. Uh, and I have the fortune to be able to make a living doing what I love, which is bringing uh, absurd visions to life in ways that hopefully along the way don't destroy the people making them. So uh, Now, my first question is, uh, did you have to see uh, like a... Like a like a mythical being that gave you the ability to not have to sleep, or were you just born that way? No, I I, I sleep. Uh, I I if I don't get eight about eight hours, I make sure I take a nap during the day. You're you Naps put the rest eight. of us absolutely to shame. Thank you, thank you so much for your effort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned your your games and stuff, and we're we're talking today um, about ugly games, um, counterculture. At an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. Um, and yeah, to kick it off, I mean, like, art mediums um, are usually defined as much by trends as by countercultures and reactionary movements. Um, but video games has a sort of unique position in aesthetics, often being a result of technical limitations more than pretty much any other art form. Um, and deliberately going against like triply polish um, is often a result of necessity as much as artistic talent, uh, artistic intent. Um, so for you, Nelson, how do you see the distinction between like aesthetic choices you have to make for production reasons and like ones that you feel strengthen your vision? Um, how do you find the middle ground there? I think the middle ground really exists in, as you mentioned, determining what the creative vision of the project is, because at least for you could say at least for the last decade and certainly for the last roughly three to five years, we have enough processing power to do basically anything. Uh, we can put a human face on a screen with skin and have that just function. Uh, the limit is no longer can we become photoreal because we know the answer is yes uh, to a degree of diminishing returns. Uh, now the question is how we can can we make we can make that faster and cheaper. Uh, the question is what do we do with all this power now? So determining creative intent is really the start of how this all comes together. For an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, we have the ability to make 3D dogs. Like it isn't that we we can't make 3D or even 2D dogs. Uh, the question was what types of things were we trying to evoke and what was the benefit we gained from having this deliberately strange art style instead and one of the big things that uh, emerged from it one of the big things i looked at was the early era of adult swim you had this uh you see this very interesting trend especially in adult animation where now we have this kind of style popularized by rick and morty that kind of propagates across all of adult animation but when Adult Swim in particular was starting. Harvey Birdman looked different than Aqua Teen Hunger Force, which looked different than uh, Assy McGee, which looked different than 12 Ounce Mouse. It was a bunch of people making very anarchic decisions, uh, partially from budget and, and, and um, limitations, but also from the sense that they were going to make something like nothing else on TV. 
and it would compel people if they could find the point between that being, you know, <laughs> not so heinous that Time Warner would take them off <laughs> the air, but also um, between, uh, yeah, being commercially viable and artistically satisfying. And for at least for my work, that's what I'm always looking at. Uh, I appreciate weird aesthetics. I know what looks good to me. But uh, I also seem to have gained a really interesting sensibility over time and have really good people around me who are helping to define how we can sharpen that to a point to where it can also be accessible to other people. Uh, and some games don't want to be accessible, and they communicate that through everything, screaming at you with their aesthetics. And the fact that we're at a place in games where those aesthetic desires can be communicated clearly um, with all the power in the world is so meaningful to our advancement as a medium because we haven't had really an adult swim era. We haven't had the ability to have a counterculture has been so limited by our lemmings like chase for a bigger, broader, more populist, uh, approach to literally everything. Although the, the word, even the term populist is just defined by what's gone before right we aren't plumbing new territory until truly these past few years where uh there's people who are doing their things at the very highest echelons of photorealism and then there's everybody else and we get to reap the benefit of that creatively and artistically i can't wait to see that continue um i mean one thing that i find interesting about your games and and those like um is and you mentioned it, um about sort of advertising this um that it's not for everyone you know going against this this grain of audience expectation and whether it's intrinsic or whether it's something that's been ingrained over time there is this expectation for for realism and stuff and you see it whenever an indie game is announced there's this there's this like ah ugly game whatever there's this there's just immediate outcry from just this reaction immediately of just disgust that anything for whatever reason isn't the glossiest shiniest thing possible and um but like well you get indie games that are sort of choose these like affordable aesthetics um you know there there is that compromise they go there's there's often games that go for ones that are no less easy on the eye like you've got you've got games that clearly are working within a budget and are stuff but you see them like going for stuff that is like still pretty eye candy it's still very pretty or appealing um and so i'm sort of fascinated you know by choices and you, you mentioned stuff like um hypnospace outlaw um, and we've been looking at games like Cruelty Squad or Post Void or stuff, and it's and it's these aesthetics where it's like it's ugly or abrasive, or they embrace rough edges or garish textures, and and really hone in on like the uncanny and uncomfortable. Um, and I just I, what interests you about like that friction between like the the game you're presenting and like um, and your audience. I think one thing that really stands out to me when you mention this. Um... I guess expectation dissonance is the degree to which it does allow you to self-select your audience as a result of that distance, right? Like you aren't, it allows you to inherently through the appearance of the game, marketing and all, uh, say, hey, if it feels like your eyes are gonna bleed when cruelty, when you look at Cruelty Squad and you aren't into that, you just don't buy the game. You can leave a nasty internet comment or whatever else, but the experience of going through that game, engaging with that community, engaging with that world is inherently locked off from you. So you have this really interesting ability to, from the commercial art side of the house, define and self-select your audience by committing to your actual aesthetic and world values instead of trying to appeal to some vague... Uh, sense of what the market will accept or like. If you aren't down with the idea of a universe of simulated airports run by stock photo dogs, no matter what other next level mechanical and aesthetic decisions we're doing to even bring that into being, you aren't really going to be on board with the air an airport brilliance currently run by dogs. And we wish you well. If you don't like those glossy JPEGs, then get the hell out of here. Yeah. Get out. It's the wrong airport <laughs> yeah. for you. 
and, airport for you. And that's the thing. I don't have to say, get the, the heck out of here, because people will just go like, ah, and then they'll run in the other direction. And everybody else gets to enjoy the glossy JPEGs of dogs. Everyone wins. The, the, the thing that really struck me about Cruelty Squad, uh, and I think this is where the conversations internally that uh, of why we wanted to have this show, was that it really actively... Um, it it combines its aesthetics with the activity that you're doing. So, you know, it's it's not a particularly pleasant thing that you're being engaged in, and so the visuals reflect that. And it puts into stark contrast these like heavily polished, um, photorealistic, beautiful murder simulators that you've been doing beforehand, where like, you know, that there is a incredible amount of thought to the exact millimeter dimensions of like what the recoil shock should be. And like that that doesn't say anything about the world at all, right? Like, or or maybe it does. Maybe it says an incredibly conscious thing about the world. It says a lot about the intended. production. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. it says a lot about the priorities. Yeah. Um, in the process of development. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, having a willingness for your game's aesthetic to actively match the unpalatability of the actions that you're performing is the thing that really interests me and being being able to do that and having the confidence in doing that was yeah just eye-opening in in terms of the way that i look at games yeah and, and frankly like uh cruelty squad which i haven't played yet but looks incredible it has this very interesting impact on um like as you mentioned this it's part of the reason if cruelty squad had a nicer sheen there's a very good chance it wouldn't be as successful as it is. Not just because of production margins from, you know, leaning into an aesthetic that they can, that they have the technical capacity or budget to pull off, but the idea that Cruelty Squad looks this way because it's communicating on every vector exactly what it is. It matches the unpalatability of your actions. You gain a... Yeah, you... you by communicating a clear creative intent through multiple aspects of a game, you get the ability to uh, really resonate with an audience. I think it's a big difference between, again, to use the example of adult animation, various eras of it, pieces of uh, that work that have worked and pieces that haven't. Because there's a lot of things that look deliberately ug ugly or lean into the unpalatability of your actions, but if you're focusing on the millimeter realism and recoil of a virtual gun um, for the sake of it, you can reach an audience, but especially if you're leaning into ugly aesthetics and there's nothing behind that, if there's no s substance when you knock over that standee, then it becomes incredibly apparent very fast. Uh, you can have... You, you can't just echo a, a Rick and Morty style. Uh, you will suffer from it either way if it does not match the the aesthetics and values of your world. I think I think there's definitely um, something to think about a lot, a lot with aesthetic choices and, and whether 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 you are going down a photorealistic route or not. Like whatever whatever sort of avenue or, or um, aesthetically you go down, it's. It's that thing of like, are you doing this because it's expected? Are you doing this as because it's the way things that you like have done it? Or have you managed to spend enough time thinking about the, like actually breaking down and starting from scratch and actually building to your creative decisions, you know, like starting from zero and building up rather than starting with the end product in mind and and then just, and not even, not even deconstructing it, you know, just like settling for that. And you see, I mean, you definitely see it in games and um, you mentioned animation and it reminds me of um, anime a lot. Um, and I know um, Miyazaki hates a lot of modern anime, but one thing um, that, he, that he did say that sort of resonated me with a little bit though was in talking about like anime cannibalizing other anime, where it's this idea of like, you do the aesthetic decisions you have are because that's just what's expected that's what other stuff does and sometimes you can be smart about that and you can you can ingest that stuff and you can make commentary on it and um, but a lot of the time and i see this in video games so often where it's just you do this because it's the done thing right like you, even and that trickles all the way down to indie stuff like i feel like even with indie games there's an expectation if you do a metroidvania there's an expectation of what the aesthetics of that are and like it applies to genre and everything and i think 
like it's interesting whenever I see something that even it's the difference of like even if you arrive at the same place like even if say you you arrive at a photorealistic look or something the same as some other game there's you can always tell when that place was reached naturally and organically from like you know the, the decisions that were appropriate for the story rather than well that's just that's just how every game looks you know and so yeah it's always interesting as well when yeah to, to opt out of that and to find like your own voice and stuff i mean not easy to do i don't want to pretend like oh god just get your own voice I think one thing we're, we're referring to here is also like the difficulty of sequels. We see this all the time, regardless of medium, where something mm -hmm. comes out, it has an intention, or at least it communicates something that taps into a collective desire or, 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 or need. And the next iteration of it tries to, instead of tapping into the same wellspring that generated the work or into the same feeling, it tries to tap into the thing that emerged from it and so you end up getting copies of copies of copies of copies of intent to the point that mm. the picture can look unrecognizable um, like a waluigi of video games Still the waluigi a, of a video games but good waluigi yeah. <laughs> is a, a good and pure thing what if waluigi was tainted by the yeah. market <laughs> <laughs> that is what we are asking. Uh, you're um, you're actually the the point about sequels is actually really interesting to me because I think this is something I get very hung up on a lot. Um, um, I mentioned I wrote a thing recently about Mass Effect. Um, and I've talked about like Halo before. Do you also believe that Mass Effect One is the best one? Yes, absolutely. Like We've been doing 100%. an investigative series about this. In fact, you can see it on our Twitch channel. <laughs> And it's um every the, the the stream is just every five minutes me going God look at these look at this concrete and these textures and but it, but it, but it's so funny though that we get that I do get hung up on those small details because they do matter like it it's funny that in a lot of ways Mass Effect obviously technically has aged you know more rapidly than the sequels but in an artistic sense holds up because the reason that they built things the, the reason that they chose that these textures and these things comes from a much more organic and nuanced place you see that there's a very particular you know they're trying to capture a vibe and an atmosphere that's pretty broad and you know within that find their own feel that is at this weird crossroads of like mystery and like horror and stuff and with each sequel, they, they, they lean harder in a particular tone. So in Mass Effect 2, it's we're the dark installment. So we're all grungy underbellies all the time. And there's no nuance. There's no variance. It's just constantly it, the same note. Oh. I mean, I like it, but it's just it's just we weaker. It's it. like diminished. And Mass Effect 3 is the same thing. It's like we're the war one now. So it's all ruins and rubble and blah, blah, blah. And it's, and it's just one note, you know, whereas Mass Effect 1 actually within the breadth of this sort of broader scope is able to go well within you know when you go to Neveria we want this like cold corporate feel and when we go to this you know world you know when you go to Varmire it should feel like kind of cozy and welcoming but the you know there's this darkness lurking on the horizon hinting at you know the way this mission's going to escalate and I think you know you talk about like yeah they they tap into the thing that people like like you know and and i think you see that very pronounced with those games like mass effect for instance like the thing that people went on about was oh, i love the characters um oh the combat's a bit rubbish so they fix the combat and they focus more on the characters and then everything else and you know people moaned about the mako so they got rid of it and it, you end up with a like slicker game but in a lot of ways a less interesting one and a lot less atmospheric and yeah, it's sort of it's sort of interesting the way that like that feedback can influence and, and feedback into so much of defining what you're like. It's almost like you lose your vision in favor of what the expectation is. Like you just you just cash out going, well, whatever a vision was before, fuck that. Here's what the audience wanted. Just fucking get that, nail it down, and and yeah, you definitely lose something. I think which maybe most people don't care about. Mass Effect Two is definitely the most popular one in that trilogy, but. I'm always a little sad when I see like I get to, th those particular vibes and feelings are just are just lost like tears and rain. <laughs> I think there's two big things that that jump out to me immediately from that and one is uh my own feelings about like I really feel for teams and studios that don't get to choose where uh EA's like hey yeah. your weird game about making out with aliens you mm -hmm. you get to do that again. You're going to do that again, right? But like better, so it makes more money, right? Uh, it, it you can you can you can set you can. It, it, I don't want to 
compare it to like having a gun to your head because like yeah obviously a, t a lot of the, a lot of the team is is working to uh, enjoys that world wants to continue it wants to keep their jobs etc but yeah there is a financial gun <laughs> that's just like hey so what do you mean you're gonna uh pursue you're gonna find a new organic vision for something that sold really really well and that everyone wants a sequel to and the second major thing that emerges from that is um yeah it's difficult to not to be in a position not to choose and it's also really weird to be in a position where your game or franchise is so ubiquitous that people can't detect the differences anymore or when you're like saying something new aesthetically it's something that really frustrates me about larger titles where I find a lot of value in AAA games, uh, partially because I kind of feel like I even know what to look for. I, I'm trying to detect what is the team saying, what are they able to communicate within, you know, the financial boundaries as well as their own game design, the step choices, and so on. But and it's heartbreaking to like do that investigation to find a lot of value from it, and then look at the comments or the uh, general t tenor around the game. And have people go like, yeah, but it's just fine. It's it, yeah, it's the same game as last year, and, and it's heartbreaking because <laughs> it's it's so visible. Like, or at least to me, like I feel like man, they went so hard, they did so much. There's so much clear intent here, even with all of the pressures and escalations and burdens that come with being a franchise that makes so much money. But it's in a package where most people don't even want to look for nuance anymore uh, or, or have prejudged that nuance can't be found there. Both of those things can be heartbreaking. And I'm, yeah, it, I, I'm wondering what we can do as an industry to even get better at recognizing that intent when it does exist in a familiar package. So, um, I mean, AAA titles, like, there are examples where they do manage to sort of take stock, come into a sequel, and go, right, okay, what can we do this time? How can we make it different? How can we find a new voice? And it, it feels like a fluke or, like, chance when it happens, but occasionally it does happen. And one that came up in our discussion about Ugly Games um, was Kanan Lynch 2, which um, was, you know, a big AAA title for IO and square um but it deliberately chased this ugly grainy opening aesthetic like it's all pretend like on a phone camera it's got artifacts on the screen they like they went so hard into like trying to make something that's just visually repugnant um which does pair up with the, the really grim ugly narrative and everything um and i guess the question is like i mean because the reaction to that was like mostly negative and i guess just sort of Wondering, do you think AAA can actually pull off that kind of thing? Like, do you think AAA can get away with being abrasive, you know? Or, or is it actually even harder for AAA to have that? I think IO Interactive is actually a really great example of being abrasive in ways that manage to toe the line between uh, commercially accessible and committed to a given creative vision. The Hitman games are among the most beautiful games out there right now technically demanding photorealistic but so much of what the visuals in entire world serve to communicate down to the ui elements for being detected come from a clear place of creative intent that was so tightly defined that they managed to keep <laughs> yeah they managed to make a contiguous trilogy that lasted, what, like five years? And then they had the ultimate edition of it in Hitman 3 where you get to play through the entire thing. Imagine any other franchise trying to stuff all of their stuff together like that. 
it would be nightmares and anarchy and little bats would fly out of the screen every time you pressed on the launcher. Uh, IO Interactive said, what if a world of murder, what if the, all of the beauty that you see served to disguise a world of deeply compromised people that you get to kill? And they made Hitman. And you can see a lot of those aesthetic values even going back to previous titles, um, barring missteps and so on. Kane and Lynch 2, great example of that studio up saying, what if we made things ugly? I think there is a space for ugly and a brace of challenging AAA work. Uh, but as you mentioned, so much of that comes through in terms of has to come through in terms of every vector of the world instead of a um, a defined vision of what is is going to be commercially acceptable or the house style just following down that path because the house style emerged from something and the the leftovers of what it emerged from are going to I guess taint the creative soup that you're building now to make an get an increasingly muddied metaphor. I think a perfect example of this is Rockstar Games, to be honest. Um, Grand Theft Auto V is a grim and ugly world in so many different ways, but the Rockstar house style of the time, uh, the, the the aesthetic choices made, like so much of that doesn't communicate it. So you get to a torture sequence, and it feels heinous to experience on basically every level it feels dissonant because it is uh on the other hand canon lynch 2 opens with a scene of torture and that can be off-putting for a variety of reasons but it it, it may it's like it, it it uses that opening shot in in much the same way as many other really good films do and it just establishes the tone immediately like we've got the shaky cam footage of a shitty camcorder pointed at these naked dudes covered in cuts they're all screaming they're all angry they're all ugly and horrible and mad and sad it's like immediately like this is what the game's about it's brilliant that's me when lockdown's over <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and that's and and that and you get it this is the way in which games can get muddled in terms of their creative intent recognizing at any level when call of duty does a torture scene or or rockstar does a torture scene and it totally conflicts with the rest of the aesthetics uh and the core values of the world or the value is or the world is ugly and the aesthetic isn't communicating that you feel a dissonance that kanan lynch for all of its ugliness doesn't have kanan lynch 2 isn't dissonant it's abrasive and recognizing the difference between those two things is a really important step to being able to appreciate the artistic values of our medium and what different creators are trying to accomplish. My favorite detail about uh, Kane and Lynch 2 is um, because it is all from that perspective of some guy's got a video camera and he's following you around. Um, when gunfire becomes like too loud or a grenade goes off, the inbuilt microphone of the fictional camera that you're viewing the game through peaks and everything sort of fizzles and and um like saturates and it's such a it's such a small element of the design but it just it really contributes to that ugliness and i really enjoy that i've been thinking a lot about the the inverse of all of this stuff like um heavily uh a very heavy aesthetic games that um you know they pull the rug on out underneath you um i've been thinking about the oeuvre of um the arcane kids specifically like uh stuff like bubsy 3d goes to the uh james Terrell retrospective and uh, sonic dreams collection the idea that they're playing around with this very like corporate cartoony sanitized version of a character that has absolutely nothing to say and then using the fact that it has absolutely nothing to say in order to make larger statements about like what corporate mascotism does for um the entirety of culture um that is just i whenever i think about aesthetic designs at this point i just i think of the scene where like you're hanging out with sonic on his couch and you're taking his shoes off like you know it's it's it, that's that's everything to me <laughs> the important thing is that Sonic's feet 
Yeah, yeah, that's the show. <laughs> yeah. Just done. Just hard so cut as soon as you say Sonic's feet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's interesting to me because, like, I, I respond, like, I, I've talked about this before, that I actually, I sort of hate myself, you know, well, generally, but also um, in terms of my taste in games, because I, I do respond to photorealism quite often. Like, I find that, like, I, I do respond to, like, textured and real feeling worlds, like, that, that sort of um, tangibleness. There is something about that when done right that does, I find, compelling um and yeah like and i sort of and it, but it's but it's interesting to me because i feel like i quite like it i feel very sensitive to when it's just games where it's like okay well there's a reason that they chose this and then the vast majority of games where it's just it, it just is there's no you know like four realism was just the default and that's what they went for we and got then, given a ray tracing budget so now it's time to uh we got we yeah gotta, i we, mean we got we, we got to do it um and um and I mean, there's there's obviously scope within photorealism. You know, photorealism has is quite broad in terms of you might you know control, for instance, has photorealistic characters and textures and stuff, but the actual world and colors and stuff are quite heavily stylized. Um, so there's scope within all that, but like. It's sort of interesting, you know, like I think of stuff like Stalker or, you know, like where it's these really grungy, you know, grungy, like, I mean, they probably don't look photorealistic by today's standards, but at the time, you know, these semi like photorealistic worlds and capturing something real can itself be very ugly. Like Stalker, the world of the zone and Stalker looks like shit. Like it's just so ugly, but it's just the real world. There's nothing, there's not a lot of embellishment about it. They just were like, hey, what does some burnt out factories and rotten girders, what does all that look like? Yeah, that's the game, that's the world, you know, you know, setting it around, you know, real world Chernobyl and- Stuff like uh, the original Dark Souls uh, looked the way it did because of advances at the time, like, it's all slimy and slippery specifically because the engine was pretty good at doing those textures and they were like well that's the best we can make it look at the minute so we're gonna have a kind of gross world where everything looks well, slightly wet. We're gonna have to put some tentacles in this <laughs> Yeah, in this game I mean, now. Oh, you've, you've really forced our hand on this one Miyazaki. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a weird it's a weird thing of like yeah again when you and we start talking about the se the sequels of that or especially remasters yeah this very weird thing where mm. the like Dark Souls one deeply wet and slippery bat the map the original Batman Arkham games deeply wet and slippery and grungy then they do the remaster Return to Arkham and suddenly things are like brighter and not as wet and slippery and it's, it's like this isn't the same game not necessarily because uh the creative content change but because even yeah the intentional limitations were abandoned along the way to to to, to show how much cooler it is or how much prettier it yeah is. it's like that remaster of silent hill where they took the fog Over out the fog. yeah <laughs> that was the whole point of everything game. we improved yeah. it it's better Oh, it's like it's like these videos. It's like these videos of of white suburban mothers taking like really old, really lovely hardwood furniture and just painting it green. Uh, the heartbreaking thing about this is, or at least one of the heartbreaking things about this for me, is a huge part of this can also be blamed on just games difficulty archiving itself and archiving intent. Mm -hmm. Uh, we usually when porting how like when Warner Brothers is like, okay, gonna get in our remaster of the Arkham games. We don't know whether or not the original developers were consulted or any original design docs were sent over. We don't have maybe the people who maybe some of the people who set the original aesthetics or limitations or decided how those limitations would be used have even straight up been burned out or left the industry. We're so often churning through people technology and an inability to even document our own processes it's surprising more of our work is not basically unrecognizable by the time we reach the other by the time it reaches the other side bioware is a perfect example of this bioware is uh still a brand it's still a studio there's still i'm sure people from uh the elden times but bioware is a fundamentally different machine the guy, one of the guys that originally started it now just, like, does beer vlogs, I think. Like, he's a professional full-time beer vlogger. Yeah. Which An IPA one? influencer. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, like, the idea that the, the lad that started the company, like, 
doesn't give a shit anymore. He wants to talk about IPAs. Like, that's about it. Like, yeah, and people are still clearly working there, but I, none of the same created, uh, creative uh, impetus that began the company is still there. And that's, that's not always a bad thing, necessarily, right? Because, you know, when you go and revisit, like, old Bioware stuff, it's like, there is stuff that's dated and, and you know, aged about it. And, you know, coming in and breathing new life into studio, like, you know, can be good. And I think about this sometimes when I think of, like, creative people who still have, you know, have had very long careers. And you, like, I think about, like, David Cage a lot of, like, the guy's been doing his thing for however fucking long, like, decades now. And he's only got worse. Like, that's the most fascinating mm. thing about it. He's only doubled down more and more. And his games are less calm. They're more technically proficient, but artistically, they are less and less interesting. Every single time, just less and less interesting until, like, like Detroit is just, like... Just so boring just aside from anything else just such a fundamentally boring game <laughs> and um it's like you know he would have benefited from like if, you know stepping back and letting other people come in and use the resources of the studio to breathe life into you know these projects like and and maybe for bioware yeah the anthem kind of tanked and stuff but maybe you know maybe there's promise on the horizon that maybe when they come back around to stuff like with the new talent you're actually you actually see this rejuvenation maybe and you know, I don't necessarily see that as all bad. Um, but on the subject of remasters, actually, it was kind of interesting um, because retro aesthetics are a big thing. Obviously, those are and those are often the 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 um, the tools of of indie games is like wielding um, uh, retro choices at the moment. Like ninety late nineties, like PlayStation One early three D game visuals are sort of being replicated um and you're seeing a lot of different games coming about influenced by that stuff and i guess sort of just like you know do you do you think um like is it just nostalgia or do you think like retro aesthetics can be wielded in a way where well obviously they can but like in what, in what way what do you think is the, the you know the fine line between like nostalgia and like actually using like retro visuals to actually say something and i ask this because you you've worked in stuff like hypnospace where i think it was utilized exceptionally well yeah there the the retro aesthetics of, of hypnospace were incredibly defined by evoking the feel of the era without in many ways, having access to original assets. And when we did get access to original assets, mm -hmm. it was it sometimes an interesting conflict of sometimes we could drop them right into the game and it just the world accommodated it. It just worked. And there's other instances where we even had to essentially do a remastering process to make it fit Hypnospace. Uh, part, if only because like our world in Hypnospace Outlaw is an alternate universe, uh, Y2K era internet. So you have to reckon with all of the... Uh, impacts of what wars did or did not happen or what artistic movements uh, did or did not happen uh, all of our music genres basically outside of like the basics of rock and pop the all of our music genres and big people there are our brands are different i have to I know think... what's what's hot dad like <laughs> hot dad is uh i didn't have a lot of personal contact with hot dad but every interaction i've had with hot dad is uh existentially delightful there is an undercurrent yeah, I can see <laughs> of that. existentialism to uh the delight and uh yeah i subscribe to his youtube channel i i i love the stuff he does I think when we're talking about retro aesthetics, there's two specific things. We were touching on a lot of the same points throughout the podcast, but one of it is, are you doing a retro game or are you using the same tools or basic palette of a retro mm. thing to originate a creative idea? Um, I think a second major thing is the concept of evolution. And sometimes when that evolution isn't uh, seen or appreciated, um, there's people evolving. 2D art. Uh, there was a really infamous tweet recently uh, about how Loop Hero just looked like an old game. Um, it, it, it was it was boring, and it looked like any game that you would play on in the '90s. And it's a testament to Loop Hero. One, it's it, it evokes what the '90s that thing actually looked like. But I was poor, 
So I used a bunch of 90s Abandonware and MS-DOS games, and let me tell you, they didn't freaking look like Loop Hero. I would have been much happier if they did. <laughs> I can't remember where this, um, this what I'm about to say comes from, but it, it was uh, something I watched about Shovel Knight um, and about how um, one of the design problems that they had was that they wanted to obviously go for the, like, the very limited visual um, flavor aesthetic. Um, but they have more processing power, so now they can do more with it. But that will go unnoticed because they're not competing with your with the actual visuals. They're competing with your recollection of the of the visuals. So, like, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter how much more effort and uh, uh, production you put behind it. People are going to be tricked by their their own minds. Yeah, it's that it's 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 brought up constantly with uh, with eighties nostalgia, right? People are very nostalgic for the eighties. Everyone's got eighties nostalgia, regardless of like how how long you were born after they happened. But like, it's not the actual nineteen eighties that people are nostalgic for. It's the idea of the nineteen eighties, and it's like all of these sort of pastiche imitations of the nineteen eighties that people are mistaking for the for the original like thing. And they had a tape are... Walkman. They sucked. It was <laughs> shit. Are you yeah. telling me you don't miss Margaret Thatcher from the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God, I just want Maggie back. Yeah. I just want... That's all I want. That's all Maggie, I want. Maggie and that like neon bisexual lighting. That's what mm. everyone misses. Um... I need to see a, a bisexual Margaret Thatcher fan cam. Right oh now. god, it's like the Thomas <laughs> Andrew, Jefferson can you can you make thing. that before this episode comes up? You can send that uh, over to Kit for the no. edit. No, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. I mean, it would be a bop. <laughs> like, if, if you set it to a Lizzo song, it would <laughs> bop, though, right? I'm... It ain't my fault that I'm out here getting loose. Whoa. Gotta blame it on the miners. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, when you don't think about your aesthetic, you're the equivalent of Margaret Thatcher fan cam. There we go. That, that's the thing though, like with 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 retro stuff. I mean, it, it goes back to what we've constantly been saying. You know, like you've got to you've got to communicate that with every vector. And it's like if you're going to evoke this retro thing and you're going to call back to this stuff, especially stuff that was from a specific time period, like say the 1980s. It's like what are what are you trying to tap into here? Because if it's just oh, I I loved those games when I was growing up, then it is just pure nostalgia, and that's fine. There's no I don't think there's any harm inherently in that. But there is definitely the shallowness, and I think the the 80s is a prime example because I think I was talking to a friend of mine, Nat Clayton, and she described it as like we have we've gotten to the point that the 80s nostalgia is so prolific and recycled that we've got to the point where probably we're in we've got nostalgia for 1980s nostalgia. Like we don't even have like no one there's no nostalgia for the real thing anymore. It's it's so recycled, and we're just caught in this loop of these these properties and these things that have been adapted and stuff. And and it's now like it's so trickled down and cannibalized that it's like hard to like pick apart like. Where, where, what, what are you talking about? Like when you tap into this stuff, you know, I was thinking about like, um, like Stranger Things and stuff, and it's like when you tap into that nostalgia, it's like, what are you doing? And and a lot of the time, the result is, oh, it's just because you, you just, you were a kid at the time, or you were young, and you thought, oh, this was, this was a time when I was happy. I don't want to think about anything outside of my life experiences or whatever. So we're just going to my happy place, and and it's sad because like you feel like you talked about um like sonic's feet <laughs> matt but like the idea of using familiar aesthetics and actually using them to be critical i hope the part of me actually talking about sonic's feet made it into the cut of the episode because otherwise it just makes it look like that's a pastime for me <laughs> yeah you just just sonic's feet just in the google um but it's, it's it's that thing of like can you use you know like are you using these visuals is is leverage you know to like to offer commentary and insight you know i think we brought you know brought up hypnospace and i think what was interesting is hypnospace is a game that you know about copyright law and like ownership and community and stuff and it is use it is leveraging that specific point in time to to go and like explore like sort of with hindsight where all that was going and where it didn't go and stuff you know as much you know it's not just oh remember this it's like 
fuck, this was this was weirdly this pivotal time in the founding days of the mm-hmm. internet and what went wrong and what and went we right didn't and know. stuff. And I think we didn't, that's... we didn't realize at the time that it was going to change, and yet it's completely different now. Uh, yeah, the internet, the internet. Remember forums? Well, so I I did a, a tweet about this a couple of days ago that was like I remember arguments about net neutrality that were like, um, oh, your ISP is going to slow down your internet speed when you go to websites that aren't like Facebook or um, um, like Netflix or whatever. Um, and now I think about websites and I'm like, what websites do I go to? Like, what would be important enough for me to want to pay my ISP anymore? Like, mm-hmm. nothing really changed. I mean, net, net neutrality did pass, but none of those no, none of those features were implemented. But the way that the internet now works is completely different uh, just through gradual iteration and funneling down to Facebook being the only place that actually... Um, well, I mean, they destroyed all content from a bunch of different... Uh, ways maybe maybe we don't use any other websites because we subconsciously were just like ah oh, it's too slow i can't be fucked i'm gonna just go back and Damn. look at memes on twitter mm-hmm. um but that's a bit deep i think that's because... <laughs> the only website that you should go to is duckforce.plus duckforce.plus www.duckforce.plus head up duckforce.plus today <laughs> Um, I, it, it, I'm going back, I'm going back to Kane and Lynch too, uh, and I do apologize. It seems a bit, uh, uh, I mean, never apologize. we're all going back to Kane and Lynch too. We've not really progressed as a society. No, that's, it's, we peaked. Um, <laughs> but the thing I really find interesting about Kane and Lynch too is it does this ugly aesthetic thing. Like it's all a camcorder, the audio peaks, there's lens flares and artifacting. The camera shakes like crazy when you're standing still. Um, and it serves it, it serves towards the sort of artistic vision of the game and what it's trying to communicate through its plot as well. Um, and it does it tremendously well. It's incredibly successful at that. But it was critically panned because everyone who played it was just like, oh, this just fucking sucks to play. So it's a bad game. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, and I wonder, I wonder if, the reason it was received in that way is because it was a AAA video game that was pitched as a, a standard like third-person cover shooter, and people weren't expecting the ugliness. People weren't expecting to have a negative experience in service of the artistic product. And I wonder, uh, especially in the last few years, if indie games are in a relatively unique position to be able to provide an ugly experience because of less of a an expectation of polish with a like AAA product. I, I think actually a great example of this in the AAA space is, you know, Kane Lynch to phrase itself as being a standard AAA cover shooter, because if it was to pitch itself as a counterculture cover shooter with, you know, a budget clearly that large, uh, their publisher likely would have been like, hey, Hold the heck up, what? Uh, on the other hand, you know, The Last of Us Part Two came out last year. Uh, was it last year or the year before? Time means nothing. But The Last of Us Part Two uh, comes last out. Last year? I think... It was last year because it's in our uh, rankings. It was last year, fuck. Yeah. Time is fucked. God. Last of Us Part Two comes out and phrases itself as constantly as it can in its marketing lead up communication around award season we're an ugly game we're an ugly thing game where bad things happen to people <laughs> but they uh, had the prestige of already having a successful one previously which allowed them to sure which was yeah. also an ugly game mm. but you get the there is a license that does come from marketing i mean for better or worse often if you say hey this game is an artistic achievement for the entire medium people can't depending on if how you mm. roll with that persuasion check you have to roll a persuasion check, but people can nod along and go like, yeah, it yeah. is. It is. Artistic achievement for our medium. The um, the thing that you'd said about um, like uh, a, a company with a very big budget pitching themselves as this like a counterculture revolutionary thing, it reminded me of um, my previous job. I, I worked in marketing for a beer company, and we had a pitch for a rebrand from somebody who um, would come in and like, you know, change all of our, um, you know, advertising and whatever. And one of the the things that they came to us with, you know, Don Draper pitching life serial style was, um, oh, we're doing a, like, you're a revolutionary beer brand, right? Like, you know, 
uh, and then I just have to say to them, what are we revolutionizing? Like, we're trying to sell poison to people. <laughs> like, that... Like, what? Like, delicious, we're just trying to take people's money. Poison. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, it would be revolutionary if we were going to turn the profit structure of the company on its head, but, like, we're not doing that. We're... We sell alcohol. So to relate that to games, sorry, I mean that, like, yeah, we're just trying to put, like, numbers of... We're trying to put ones and zeros in front of people. We're not, like, you know, we're not a counterculture. We are the culture. And, mm. and this is this is a space where, as you mentioned, Astrid, like, could an indie pull off a Cam Lynch too? Uh, <laughs> you could say Cruelty Squad is the Cam Lynch too mm-hmm. of the modern day. Um, but it, it is interesting. They'll take of, that. They'll take that and put it on the box. <laughs> but it's interesting to also <laughs> note that like, Cruelty Squad will likely never break the sales that Cam Lynch two did. Because when you're, we're, we're discussing a series of scales, right? So you have a game made with a budget. This stood out to me really starkly last year where like Supergiant announced that Hades sold a million copies. And a million copies is huge. That's a lot of money. They're going to get to make their next game. I'm so happy for them. They also made a super quality product. That is a game of budget and heft. However... And it was further funded through the early access process. But one thing that was also really shocking is in a few days after that, Cyberpunk 2077 announced that they had shipped 13 million copies. And that they weren't it's... happy about that. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the critical Wasn't reception enough? was, 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 uh, it was um, less than they expected. God, I want to say even the original Kane and Lynch apparently had like I, it might be something to do with Square Enix because I, I might be misremembering two different things. But I, oh no, it was a like a like a Tomb Raider or it was Tomb Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider got flack because um, the Tomb Raider reboot only sold like a million or two million copies, something like that, and Square Enix saw that as a failure. Um, mm-hmm. Which yeah, you know they sold the same amount as Hades, but because of budget and scale, yeah, totally mm-hmm. different. Uh, I, I, I think, and we're talking about like the difficulties of being in AAA, it would be really heartbreaking to make a game that ships, it's sold, it's, it's sold over 10 million copies, uh, but that wasn't enough. It wasn't a million, it was a 10 million. It was, they've shipped over, they shipped over 11 million by November, 2017. Um, that is a stunning, uh, achievement, but you know, if if your target is however many million, that is going to be enough. Marvel's Avengers is the current banner that I'm carrying because I really enjoy the game. The story is great. It's been kind of nominated as, like, the given whipping boy of the industry for the, for the time being. Like, every single comment on it is dead game, shit game. Why doesn't it have the Marvel faces? Uh... And meanwhile, <laughs> why doesn't it have the like, thing I recognize? And meanwhile, like, yeah, I think it it does communicate so much creative int. It has some of the typical AAA compromises, but so much creative intent, so much depth can be found in its narrative and in its mechanics and in how it presents it. And it's big and it's beautiful and it's fun, but the question of what is enough. Is something that any uh, any uh, that any ugly or beautiful game has to reckon with. What is enough? What expresses a creative intent, and then what makes that successful enough to do the next title? I am in constant fear of hey, well, one of my favorite live service games, one of the last, one of the rare live service games that doesn't feel like it's trying to suck all of my time. Will the eye of Saron turn towards it and like blast it from existence because it only sold, you know. 10 million copies instead of the 30 million it was supposed to with the marvel license i mean i i I suppose especially with marvel's avengers as well didn't they recently announce that they're going to be making the game grindier to a certain extent um they were going to slow down portions mm. of the leveling process uh some people think that that's in suspicion of a upcoming free-to-play thing i don't have any knowledge of uh free-to-play thing but that's that is a scary move, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ugh. That makes me ask questions of why this didn't really take off, and I like I I have to 
my immediate reaction is that uh, is the audience for this superhero thing too young have the young people um been conditioned to think that games are free and they're on the telephone right like has Fortnite poisoned the well for this sort of like development um or if it were a you know a, a better um not not to say that it's a bad game but if it were better um received would it be doing better in spite of its aesthetics yeah i, I there's a lot of it's interesting what games get forgiven for what sins mm. uh yeah if any of them did well it would be uh, an example of like a success story but it's just because it didn't do well for factors that are beyond any human comprehension in a lot of cases it's it's bad yeah. and unsuccessful all of my friends who play Destiny complain about Destiny constantly and mm -hmm. keep playing Destiny. Yep. And then people play Destiny like <laughs> yep, they're like, you know yep. what? This is like Destiny, but shit. And it's like, well, it de it's doing the exact same thing, or in some cases better. A lot of respect for Bungie, a lot of respect for the Destiny team. But as an example, like Destiny gets forgiven for a lot of sins that other things can't fly. Last of Us Part Two, for any fo foibles or criticisms that people have, it does things and, and creatively and has content that no other thing would be able to pull off unless they were Naughty Dog, specifically making Last of Us Part Two, marketing it as an ugly game. Yeah. Uh, so as an indie, the, the real the, sometimes the real question feels like, is, not is your game ugly, but if I roll persuasion on this, do I have the cachet, do I have the budget, the marketing, or the otherwise perception around my project that will allow it to be seen in the way that I want it to be seen and to then make that a success. And that roll of dice is terrifying because it feels so often like you only get the chance to do it once. So to to bring it back to your own work, um, Nelson, um, you've got you've got a couple of games on the way because of course couple. you do because you're the busiest person in the industry. We've got five developed internally, but we've revealed okay. two. <laughs> so many games. <laughs> Outstanding. Wow, Outstanding. this is incredible. I don't think I have that many ideas in a year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Sonic's feet takes um, up like seventy exactly. percent of the brain space. Yeah. I get, I yeah. get the pain. <laughs> um, Can we put like a thought bubble kit? Actually, can we just cut to a like thing of me like thinking about feet? I'll get a take feet, of the though. other side just in case there's more room. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's for you. That's you perfect. can have fun with that one, kit. <laughs> to uh, to to bring it back because the one the one that you. You pretty much just announced. I feel like this. I don't know. I'm losing track of time, but I feel like this was announced like not so long ago. Um, was Space Warlord, Organ Trading Simulator. Um, which I mean, from the name alone, like communicates so much. Do you want to? Do you want to tell us a bit about it and what's going on there? Yeah, a uh, I was in a hospital and a doctor walked up to me and, and said, stole your organs. Hey, buddy, well, you wanna you wanna buy some organs? <laughs> Well, it wasn't a doctor. I didn't know that it was a doctor at the time because they weren't dressed in any medical scrubs, but they walked up to me. I was sitting alone in basically a locked room. They opened the door, closed the door behind them and said, would you like to see your insides? And I was like, well, this could go a few a number of ways. <laughs> and... Oh, shit. Is that threat? <laughs> <laughs> One of them could be an interesting story. So let's do it. Turns out uh, he was a doctor practicing uh, ultrasounds to like, yeah, because he was going through his, his rounds and the number of things you have to go through before you become a full doctor, your residency, I believe it's called. And uh, I got to see my own internals work and that planted the seed of something uh, alongside, you know, a lifelong uh, fascination with body horror and the particularly the idea, the creative impulse of taking something that sounds ridiculous or heinous and finding a nuanced and compelling way to bring it to life. Uh, and that ultimately resulted in <laughs> a road that led me to Space World at Organ Trading Simulator, <laughs> a sci-fi body horror market tycoon game 
about uh, buying, selling, and trading, the one thing that everyone needs uh, and has in an evolving and alien universe, organs. God, I wasn't expecting that from the name. <laughs> and the other game that you've got upcoming um, that we've talked about already, um, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs the currently and there that name is so ominous oh it's um, it's got so much weight and... resting on it I thought, yeah it's great back when i thought that the game title wasn't already long enough i was gonna have a subtitle that said first there were humans then there was aliens then there were dogs um do you want to tell us a bit about it like just because for um because I think it's one of the most, like, sh just one of the strangest, most specifically you games that I think you've 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 done yet, where I just, I couldn't imagine anyone else doing it and also making it work so well. So, yeah, to talk us a bit through it, because it's a lot. Yeah, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs being a prime ex example of the creative impulse to take something ridiculous and make it work and be compelling and hopefully commercially accessible. Uh it is an open-world comedy adventure game about traveling a universe of simulated airports run by stock photo dogs, solving their problems, and finding time to spend with the people that you love. Uh, you are one of the last two human beings left in the universe, uh, and y'all meet at airports and depart and maintain a healthy long-distance relationship. It is a lovely and beautiful thing that was very hard to write uh and i cried when it was finished it's a it's a good thing you can pet the dogs in it then for comfort um you cannot pet your fiance i thought that that would be don't tell me what i can and can't do <laughs> oh I, dear it, it got it got really weird when you start like at first because our system just recognized anything you can pet as also being a dog you can pet a garbage can because a Twitter joke went too far one day. But every time you pet the garbage can, like, it barks because it's recognizing the code as a dog. So we had to we had to put a dog on the side of it to justify that decision. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we, did, we didn't kill it. Um, then we had to be like, oh, man, the, the cats should probably have their own pet sound. Uh so, like, yeah, I had to, it was at 3 a.m., I had to, like, try to quietly both make cat noises and then satisfy cat noises while not sounding deeply sexual and waking up the rest of the people in the house, which is very hard to do when you're doing <laughs> professional like, yeah. voice acting. God, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> um, you learn a lot about uh, how cats sound when humans do them, which is a very <laughs> ominous sentence. <laughs> Sonic's feet. Sonic's feet. <laughs> Sonic's feet. It's so it's so it's so upsetting to me that Sonic's feet has become a sort of safety blanket that we're clinging to. When we're this not is sure the title of the episode. Oh. Yeah, that's it now. It's the mm. thumbnail is just Sonic's feet now. Oh, it's looking consumed to that. everything in the episode. Yeah. Putting that together. Is that bit the end of Akira, but it's just Sonic's feet expanding and consuming <laughs> the world? Sonic's feet expanding is a separate thing, mm -hmm. and I will inform you that there are at least tab 10 on my browser. Who appreciate it. Uh... But uh, we, you know, I, I won't point people to where they can enjoy Sonic's feet. But maybe you can let us know, Nelson. When is um, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs available for people to to purchase and play through? An airport for aliens currently run by dogs, as we have just announced uh, a few days ago. By the time this comes out. Uh, arrives on xbox series consoles as a console exclusive and on steam on may 25th you know because this breaks the boundaries of what can be graphically conveyed it's a series <laughs> exclusive i can't believe you've come on here nelson to announce that xbox has a new console that's that's news to us <laughs> this is the like, first we, we, this is the first this incredible scoop for us I think this is the first canon appearance of the Xbox on Glasshouse Games. It is genuinely the first time I think that we've mentioned the Xbox series <laughs> exists. Oh, well, yeah. for, 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 for the Glasshouse Games audience who only, like, the, they use the Glasshouse Games 
podcast and, and, and series of content as their oracle into now, the outside world. It's the only thing they can trust. Yeah. I, I am happy to inform you there's an Xbox console. It's called the Xbox Series X or S. There's two of them. And you can there's choose. There's two of them? It, one is black and one two is white. Two consoles? And, and... <laughs> I... I don't like this. I'm out. <laughs> God, I feel like I feel like I've just found I've just found like oh, it's not just shadows on the wall anymore. It's not just shadows on the wall anymore. There's a whole other world out there. I well, actually, it's technically shadows on the wall because if you put a light in front of the small one, which is white, it casts <laughs> uh, a giant black cube shadow, oh, which wow. is incidentally the shape of the other console, and it's black. Incredible. <laughs> Listen, Xbox is the only company bold enough to use its consoles to demonstrate philosophical concepts, okay? <laughs> We're proud to be a console exclusive. Well, <laughs> I think we better we better get off here and start the rescue party. Um, thanks for joining us, Matt, wherever you are mourning the announcement of two Xbox consoles. Um, thanks for joining us, Astrid. And, and thank you so much, Nelson, for coming and illuminating us with your vision and your um, great, great wellspring of knowledge. Um, is there anything is there anything other than an airport currently run by dogs um, that you want to plug while you're here? Yeah, you can wishlist an airport for aliens currently run by dogs and Space World Organ Training Simulator, which are both far more nuanced than they uh, might sound or appear uh, on Steam right now. And Skatebird, which is a game I'm a narrative director for and has a full story campaign. It's beautiful and great and cute uh that's also on steam you can wish list that we're going to be coming to places in the very near future and uh buy canon lynch too it, it's usually like two bucks on steam buy it's like eight, it, i got it for eight quid and that felt worth it to me so yeah no plugging canon lynch too in the year 2021 it's that time um if you have um if you have thoughts on anything we've discussed today, particularly if you have very strong opinions about Ken and Lynch too, please get in touch. You can comment below. Um, you can send us an email at community.glasshouse.games or you can just add us on Twitter, whatever you're, you prefer. Um, and if you if you enjoy what we do, please like and subscribe and share our content with the people you care about. And, um, and if you really like what we do, please think of uh, joining, signing up with our Patreon. We've got a lot of good, great, um, exclusive stuff on there and um, with more on the way we're brewing away nice little new things um, and you get a lot of our content early persuasion chat you get that whole month early whole month early um so do consider it we appreciate it and for people that have been supporting us this whole time through patreon thank you so much um it means a lot and i hope you've been enjoying the exclusive streams we've been running it's been really nice chatting with you um and getting to know you a little bit um, so yeah, thanks for everyone for joining me today, and thanks Nelson for taking time out your incredibly busy schedule to join us. It is, uh, as always, uh, an immense pleasure and honor. Oh, um, and of course, thank you to Kit for making sure nothing exploded while we're recording this, um, and adding all the thought bubbles with Sonic's feet in in the edit. And thanks to Dancy Parks for the music. I'm Samantha, and we'll talk again soon. Bye.